We started a series the last couple of weeks on uh, the topic of uh, Calvinism, uh, particularly unpacking tulip theology. And my uh, premise is there are no tulips in the Bible. And uh, tonight we're going to look at the U, which stands for unconditional election. And uh, in Acts 17, look at verse number 30. Um, Paul talking, and he says, And the times of this ignorance... In fact, let me back up in verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone, a graven of the, um, art, uh, by art and man's devices. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, that's Jesus, whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Notice this now, commanding all men everywhere to repent. That's Acts uh, uh, 17.30. Did I give the right address there? Okay. Uh, think about that now. He's commanded all men everywhere to repent. Um, uh, why? Because there is a day. There is a day of reckoning. And notice, by a man, this, this judgment, by a man whom he ordained and appointed. And uh, so I want to talk about this a little bit tonight, look at uh, what... Uh, what Calvinists believe about unconditional election and ask the question, is this biblical? And what's the point? What are, what are the dangers? What is, what's so bad about this? And, uh, uh, and hopefully we'll uh, walk away having learned something and growing in some conviction, and hopefully it'll be helpful to us tonight. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you'd help us tonight. Lord, I pray this wouldn't just be um, a classroom uh, lecture this evening, but that you would really help us, that this is an important issue that is spreading. Uh, it's making another wave. Uh, in this day and age we live in, theologically and among churches. And Lord, I pray we help us to see that this is not only unbiblical and untheological, but it's really an attack on the character of our God. And so Lord, I pray that we would be able to defend our position, um, be able to uh, defend with Scripture what the Bible actually teaches and says, and may be glorified with everything that's said and done tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned before, uh, if you struggle with insomnia, then a good thing to get a hold of is uh, is John Calvin's uh, Institutes, and it'll cure your insomnia. It'll put you right to sleep. It is the most dry, most boring uh, reading that you come across. But uh, but you know the real appeal to Calvinism is just that it's intellectualism. It's I've got some kind of higher understanding, some kind of higher enlightenment than you do, and uh, and that's the uh, that's what you get many times in your discussion with a Calvinist. This um, this sort of a condescending attitude. Well, you just aren't enlightened. You just don't understand um, these things. But uh, but when we look at it, this we got to ask the question: Does this theology really line up with Scripture? And you might say, well, what's the big deal? I think the big deal on one extreme is is it's going to keep people from getting the gospel. Uh, on, on the other extreme, well, you know, another extreme is that it makes God the author of sin, and all that is evil. Uh, it's really an attack again on the character of God. Um, there was a church here in town that uh, uh, the pastor was wanting to do a study on Calvinism and uh, to kind of refute it, and he got himself so deep into it that he ended up leading the church into Calvinism, and it took about. Um, 10, 15 years, and uh, the church is probably full, closing up shop here soon. Uh, why? Because it's a dying theology. It's a theology that breeds death, not life. Um, God truly has commanded all men everywhere to repent. He's, taught, he's commanded us to preach the gospel to every creature. And, um, and so when we talk about Calvinism and tulip theology, um, it, really, it really boils it down to this. God's going to do what God wants to do according to his divine will and purpose and uh, his own counsel, determinate counsel of God. They like that phrase, the determinate counsel of God. Doesn't that sound so smart? And, you know, it's from the scriptures, uh, but they've completely misunderstood what's going on there. And, uh, and what it does is basically everything that comes to pass because God foreknew, that, uh, then that means that God forewilled. Because God knew something was going to happen, that means he willed it to happen. That's this big leap. And so, so I'll share some things with you uh, tonight. Now, when we talk about this, uh, the, the, the greatest um, document, I guess you could say, for Calvinism today is uh, the Westminster Confession. And, uh, and that is, uh, that's one that was put together basically out of Calvinism, and, uh, and many churches adhere to that today. But TULIP, as we talk about, is the five-point uh, foundational summary of the modern Reformed theology. 
And uh, in TULIP, here's something important to understand. TULIP is a set of assumptions, all right? Now, I've said it a few times, but I've not really drilled it in, I don't think. What do we do with assumptions? Question them. All right, a few people got it right. Good. Question the assumptions. You see, and by the way, we all have assumptions. We all have some, some, some preconceived ideas that as, we, as we approach things. Uh, there are some things that I have established personally, uh, scripturally, that that, is, that has become an assumption to me. And even that I should revisit from time to time. Make sure I'm sound. Make sure I'm understanding the scriptures. But question the assumptions. There's a lot of assumptions that we come to um, that, that, that have been because we've been told over and over again. You know, for example, uh, if someone is told, is drilled into them over and over again, that Jesus is not God, Jesus is not God, Jesus is not God, they're going to interpret certain scriptures in a certain light because they need to twist it. They need to make sure it says Jesus is not God. You see, and uh, and you might see certain things like that. Um, uh, I shared with you before um, a book I grabbed a hold of about the cross. Uh, Jimmy Swagger. Uh, he created this strange doctrine about how salvation is actually in the actual symbol of the cross. The cross itself, the symbol, the image of the cross. And he creates this kind of superstition around this image of the cross. He writes a whole book on it. Well, I had a lady, and I say, well, read this. It'll bring some clarity to what I'm trying to you know, share with you. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll read this. I kind of perused through it and everything. But I, 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 draw, I jumped into this portion, and I started to realize very quickly, this guy is taking a bunch of charismatic uh, Pentecostal presuppositions, and he's reading them into Old Testament passages, and he's all over the place. I'm thinking, but that's not what the text says, you see? And, uh, but, but, but if we're not careful, we take what we want the Bible to teach and to say, and by the way, can I just say Baptists are guilty of it too? And uh, we take these ideas and we, we, we push it in there. I'll, I'll give you an example. <laughs> Let me go here. <clears throat> if you're baptized Catholic, what are you? Catholic. If you're baptized Mormon, what are you? You're Mormon. You're baptized Presbyterian, what are you? And Jesus was baptized by who? John the Baptist. <sighs> now, can I say there are people? There are people. What's that? Still makes Jesus God. Yeah, at the end of the day, he's still God. Uh, there are people that will dogmatically take something that started out as a joke, and they teach that as doctrine. Now, what dispensation does John the Baptist fall into? Old Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. Okay? If we're getting our salvation from John the Baptist, we're in trouble. Um, because of what he taught. Um not going to get into that right now. But, uh, but anyways, what I'm talking about, though, is those presuppositions, those ideas, right? And then here's where we take it even further. Now, how many of you believe that we are saved by grace through faith? I believe that, right? That is the day and age we live in, the, the, uh, if I can say it this way, the dispensation that whosoever will may come, right? Old Testament, it was really all revolved around Israel and God's plans and his covenants with Israel. That we don't see that in the New Testament. What do we see? We see it's been committed to uh, to the church, and uh, and whosoever will may come. Every uh, every nation. There's no national borders. There's no uh, you know ethnic. There's no uh, uh, language borders or any of those kind of things. It is to go to all people, right? But we start. Here's what we start doing. If we're not rightly dividing the word of truth, we start taking what we understand to be true here in the New Testament. What, we, what do we do? We superimpose that on the Old Testament. And we get our theology all weird and mixed up. Or we go the other way, and what happens? We teach a works-based salvation. Okay? Uh, and so what I'm saying is I don't mean... I hope I didn't just start you know, going down and something I need to finish and, and circle around and uh, complete the thought. But my point is this, that, uh, that we can approach with certain suppositions that can really mess up our thinking. The Calvinist, if you listen to a Calvinist and especially a, a strong Calvinist, or we might say a, a hyper-Calvinist, a Calvinist that's on a lot of sugar, he, he views every text of Scripture through tulip. Every text, every passage of Scripture, it's all about the elect, God's elect, it's all about um, you know, God's sovereignty, and it's all about, you know, and, and, and by that, I mean, their convoluted um, understanding of the sovereignty of God or the grace of God. Everything goes through that lens, you know. Um, John MacArthur, who, by the way, is, a, is, is a, a very good expository Bible preacher, 
um, especially for his early, earlier stuff. But, uh, but you listen to him. You listen to him. He's a strong Calvinist. Every passage is going to Calvinism. And it's through the lens of Calvinism. And, um, and so we get a misunderstanding. So we're going to look at some things. I, I think next week, well, in two weeks, um, uh, I, I may take us through a journey that will, that will show us what election is all about. But here's the problem. When you hear a word over and over, certain words in the Scripture, they're biblical words. By the way, the, the word election is in the Bible. Would you agree? Of course. You know, there's nothing to refute. You can show me right now from your Bible. It's in the Bible. The problem is when a word is hijacked to make you think it means something that it does not mean. And then all of a sudden we're scared of it. Okay? Here's a word that's in the Bible that we hardly ever use as Baptists. Holy Ghost. Why? Because the Pentecostals love that Holy Ghost. We got the Holy Ghost revival, you know. And so we just say, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. Why can't we say Holy Ghost? It's in the Bible. You see? But it sounds weird. Okay, um, but there's certain things, you know, we start talking about uh, spiritual gifts. We start talking about different things and, and we get all nervous. So um, so it's a it's a series of assumptions. That's what I was getting at. The assumptions and those assumptions have to have to all fall in place and hold together. But here's the problem. When you've established some assumptions, you have to make everything fit into that, because we understand that God's not going to contradict himself. The scriptures don't contradict so if, what I, if I say something that can be refuted in Scripture, I have to now start twisting and, 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 and playing with certain passages, which we're going to see. We talked last week about uh, the, the, D, uh, I'm sorry, the, the T, the total depravity of man in tulip theology. Okay? And, uh, and from that, the other side of the coin, which is necessary, is what we're going to look at tonight, this unconditional election. Okay? Those two have to go together. And uh, we'll see that in a minute. But uh, Tulip, uh, just a couple of preliminary thoughts. Uh, Tulip has been so widely taught that in some circles, one would think that those who do not hold to its points are unorthodox. By the way, can I say this? Those that hold to the Scripture typically are unorthodox. It's just kind of where the church is today. Um, orthodoxy, which is kind of funny because uh, ortho means straight. Doxology is worship, straight worship, you know, that has not veered to the left or to the right. Uh, most of the things that are, that are thought as orthodox are typically, uh, uh, you know, uh, typically in error these days. But anyways, uh, so, so, so be careful with that. Um, uh, and by the way, just because the major, you know, majority might say something uh, does not mean it's right. You know, there's a time when the majority thought the world was flat. All right. Today, there's still some people that do. And uh, um, there, there are times when, uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of weird errors that the majority believed. The majority never proves anything. So I always love it when people say, well, most scholars agree. Okay, first of all, can I have some names? Because usually they don't give you names. They just say, most scholars. That's, that's just an anonymous. That, that's, that's like when a, when a journalist is trying to give you some, some information, and it just says, sources have said, well, you got to tell me the sources. You need some credibility here, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, we can just say whatever we want. I can find a source to say something if I'm not going to credit them. But anyways, um, uh, and then uh, Tulip proponents have successfully propagated the idea that the opposite of Calvinism is Arminian theology. And um, I will say this. I do believe that Arminianism and Calvinism, there's a spectrum here, but they're really two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, you have... Um, uh, Arminianism says that God cannot save everyone. And on the other hand, you have God is able but is unwilling to save everyone. That would be the Calvinist side. And, um, and, uh, and I say both are wrong. We don't have to put ourselves into, into a spectrum, so to speak. And so uh, Tulip, which we'll be covering, is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so we'll look at all those tonight. We're on unconditional election that we're going to go through. I want to share some excerpts from the Westminster Confession, which is the basis of Reformed theology and uh, what, uh, what many of these churches go, um, uh, kind of get their, their baseline uh, from. I mentioned last week, someone had asked me, uh, was anyone that's in here asked me for the link to that uh, video I was telling you about? Somebody went through and line by line went through the Westminster Confession. One of you? Was it you? Okay. Remind me again. I'll send it to you. Okay. Um, apologize for that. But, um, but that's kind of their, their creed, um, and, um, 
what they pull from. But, uh, but here, here's, uh, here's an excerpt from there about unconditional election. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, by the way, you don't find that phrase in Scripture, predestinated unto life, uh, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit. By the way, what does it mean to effectually call? It means that, that if God calls, it will happen. It was effectual. It came to pass, right? It, uh, it affected something. And so, so it, by God is God pleased. Those that he has predestinated to life, he has predetermined, so to speak, um, He's uh, at the accepted time, uh, effectual to call by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them the heart of flesh. By the way, does that phrase sound familiar? Taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh. Where does that phrase come from? I'm sorry? It does come from the Bible. Yes, that's the, that's the Sunday school answer right there, the Bible. Anybody know specifically where it comes from? One of the prophets, yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe it shows up in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I know for sure it's in Ezekiel. And what it, it's about the covenants with Israel. It's about God dealing specifically with Israel. What they've done is they've taken that to talk about salvation. Now here, that, that alone reveals something to us. You cannot be a true reformist, reformed theology. You cannot be a true Calvinist without buying into replacement theology. You take all these passages that are about Israel, God's dealings with Israel, God's covenants with Israel, and what do we start doing? We start applying it to everyone. Start specifically the church, but we start applying it to everyone. And, um, and I tell you what, replacement theology is going to mess up all your hermeneutics. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to completely destroy your hermeneutics. Uh, can I tell you that the church is not Israel? The church has not replaced Israel. And God still has a plan for Israel. What shall we say concerning Israel? Hath God put, God put, uh, them, uh, put her away forever? God forbid. You see, God has not done away with Israel and made the church Israel. It, he has set her aside for a season. In fact, the Bible even talks about it in Romans. Romans gives the whole plan, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, read Romans 9 onward, and what you're going to find is God's plan with Israel. And how he's using the Gentiles. He says, blindness in part has come to Israel. Why? Because he's bringing, bringing the Gentiles in, uh, and, and it says to provoke them to jealousy. There's going to come a time where God is going to deal with Israel as a whole again, as a nation again. And here's where people that attack uh, um uh, 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 well, here's where the replacement theology people will attack the um, the dispensationalists and say, "Well, you guys just think that God's just going to, you know, give Israel a free pass and all that, you know." But they're looking at it from that "whosoever will may come" mentality. That is God's free uh, offering to every individual today. How do people come to Christ today, individually and personally? You have to make a choice to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God is, was dealing with Israel as a whole in the Old Testament. God's going to deal with Israel as a nation or as a people again in the future, uh, partly through the tribulation. But anyways, uh, so we see there's a little glimpse there of the error, and that is they're, they're asserting things that were dealing with Israel and put into the church. Um, and so that's replacement theology. So it talks about, uh, you know, referring to salvation, saying that God will take away their heart of stone and give to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills. By his almighty power, determining uh, them that, um, to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely. Again, it was just said. God is going to change their will by his almighty power so that they can choose freely to come to Christ. Did that register to anybody? Is it just me that noticed the... Are you freely coming to Christ if God makes you come to Christ? No. Well, is God sovereign then if people have free will? Yes, in His sovereignty, He gave us free will. It's not that hard. But anyways, um, yet so as they come freely, get this now, being made willing by His grace. Is it a free will or did God make us 
receive his grace. We'll get into that in the coming weeks, the irresistible grace. Um, now, grace is a free gift, but grace must be received, as a gift must be received. You know, you can refuse a gift. I could have a gift for you, and you can refuse it. Um, you could actually refuse a pardon. Uh, there was a time in history, I, I don't remember exactly uh, who the story revolves around, but there was a president that gave a presidential pardon to a man, and the man refused it. And this went back to the courts. They had to decide, what do we do with this? Uh, you know, can you force a pardon upon somebody? And the ruling was, you know, a pardon must be received. Yeah, the guy had the death penalty. You know, a pardon must be received. And so since he refused it, he will be hanged. They will go through with the death penalty because he refused the pardon. You cannot force a pardon on somebody. God offers us a free pardon because of Jesus Christ. But you can't force it on people. He has the, you know, uh, um, man has to receive, has to, has to uh, accept this free gift. And continues, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything all, at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein. So you and I don't play a part. We're passive in this thing of God uh, bringing us to himself. Until he be quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer the call. So here's the idea. God quickens you or makes you alive. We looked at this last week. He redeems you, thus enabling you then to answer the call to salvation. Remember we looked at it last time, last week. God, God, what's the, what was the word that was used? Um, You are born again, then you are saved. God regenerates you from this death position so you can then answer the call to salvation. You see, they get it all kind of kind of weird. And of course, the illustration is preaching to a dead body. Okay? They're seeing that from a completely humanist standpoint that that is an empty shell. You see? Yes, a message from the body to the body is, is not going to accomplish anything spiritual. It has to reach the soul, and the soul of man can, you know, will respond. But, um, but he says that man is passive in this thing. So uh, he's quickened in the spirit, thereby enabling him to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered to him and conveyed in it. So God has to wake you up, and it has nothing to do with you. It's passive is your response. But then when you are awakened or you are uh, uh, quickened, made alive then you can respond to this grace, okay? Which we'll talk about in the, uh, in the next one. Now, now why, why, why does the doctrine of total depravity necessitate then this doctrine of unconditional election? You see, unconditional election came about because they had to figure out how do we answer this thing. Well, the total depravity of man is that man is completely unable to respond to God unless and until God first quickens them. But we understand from Scripture, uh, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, that God quickens us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is synonymous with salvation. It happens simultaneously. They teach that God has first elected you, making you saved. Too much? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, that, that God first uh, uh, makes you alive somewhere after birth, and then along the way, at some point, you have the opportunity to respond to the gospel message. That's what they teach. And, and uh, so, so here's the question. Um, so God calls somebody or God quickens them and calls them to receive his grace. So what about babies? What about infants? Here's what they say. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh, uh, who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all who uh, other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So, the, so, so what's interesting is I don't know if you noticed that the the Calvinist I almost agree with their position on if, on, on on infants if an infant dies in uh, in their infancy, okay? But we have a completely different premise, and we're coming from a completely different position. But notice what they said. I don't know if you caught the word elect infants. So now, here's where you have to challenge the Calvinists. What about non-elect infants? Where do they go? 
And if they're going to be consistent, non-elect infants are condemned to hell. Right? Well, don't feel bad because God's already decided who's going to hell no matter what, whether they're infants or adults. That's the theology. It's fatalism. It, this is what they what they teach of God. Okay, and uh, and then so others uh, others non elected infants or adults, although they may be called by the ministry of the word. In other words, uh, we're commanded to preach the gospel to every creature, right? So they they're called by the ministry of the word, but because they're not elect and may have they may have some common operations of the spirit, yet they never here's the key word truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. They never truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved, right? This is where they start leading towards that perseverance of the saints. And so you may have a spiritual interest, right? This is where they might go to First uh, John. They went out from us because they were never one of us. Uh, they weren't one of the elect, okay? And can I tell you, I remember I said words have been hijacked. Can I tell you the word election or elect has zero to do with salvation? It has zero to do with salvation. Next week this is going to be exciting. We're going to look at every time the word election shows up in the Bible. Buckle up. It has nothing to do with salvation. Okay? Uh, so we'll look at some verses real quick, but, but here's some questions. Let's investigate this issue. Here's some questions. Did God select some for salvation and leave others to damnation? That's the question to ask. Here's a great proof text. Romans chapter 9. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Can I say it this way? Jacob have I chosen, Esau have I rejected. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now, if you, all you have to do, by the way, is plug the verse into its context, and you'll find very quickly, who's Jacob? What's Jacob's other name? Israel. Folks, and, and when we look at this, by the way, when we look at it with a plain sense, yeah, I believe in unconditional election. What did Abraham have to do for God to call him out of Ur of the Chaldees? Nothing. God simply picked him. He was elect. What did Jacob have to do? Nothing. God reiterated the covenant with no nothing attached. Now, he had expectations of him. He wanted obedience from him, but he had chosen him. In fact, that's what it says in Romans 9, how he had chosen him from before the foundation. And so, uh, kind of interesting. So, so with this verse, because he loves some and hates others, see, here, here's again the problem. We're looking at a nation, how God was dealing in a certain circumstance, and what are we doing? We're applying it to all people. So God's going through here. Forget tulip. It's more like a daisy. You know, God loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Is God going through and indiscriminately? By the way, I don't know if you noticed this. Why then are there entire people groups with no knowledge of God? And it seems to be families that, that follow God, right? Uh, you're in a Christian, we use the term born into a Christian family. Did God just happen to just elect all those people in that same family and just rejected all those in the Middle East? You know? And why are there time periods where there might be more people coming to Christ and other times a more famine or drought, spiritually speaking? I guess God was very hateful during those generations. I believe the purpose and the desire of God has never changed. When the Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish. And by the way, the word willing is in there, which means the will of God. Not willing, it's against his will that any perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hell, folks, hell was not made for, for man. The Bible tells us very plainly it was made for the devil and his angels. So if God is predetermined that some are just to be condemned, that, then that scripture would be wrong. That God did make hell for man. Think about that. See, we can unpack this on so many different angles. So, did God select some for salvation and leave others to damnation? I will tell you this. The Bible will be silent on that. You are not going to find that in Scripture. Secondly, if you did so, uh, which leads to the last question, does the Bible clearly teach this? Everything, And let me say this. Everything we know about God came from where? Well, I had a dream one night. Everything we know about God came from scriptures, from the Bible. So if I formulate an idea about God apart from the scriptures, let me ask you, is that God? The Bible talks about creating God in man's image. That's, 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 you know, we, we're creating our own idea of God. We, we're creating this, uh, this concept, if you would, of who God is. 
And folks, that's called what? It's called idolatry, right? We've created another God. And, uh, and so we need to be so careful, you know, and we see that all the time, right? Well, here's what I think God is, right? Well, don't you know, you know, uh, doesn't the Bible say somewhere that God is love? And how could a loving God send anybody to hell? You see, what are we doing? You may have some thoughts or ideas or maybe you heard something about God and we're trying to formulate this idea about who he is based on that. But did you get that from the Bible where God has revealed himself to us? You see, apart from the scriptures or, you know, even if you, re, you, know, you may reject the scriptures, you need something that is authoritative that says this has to be the standard of truth. How did God show himself to us? How did God reveal himself to us? And he showed himself to us on the pages of scripture. So if we were to formulate uh, a God not found in scriptures, that cannot possibly be God. Um, so, so when we when we when we unpack these things, we got to ask ourselves: Did this come directly from Scripture? Is this? And we talked a little bit. Uh, was I think the first week where uh, um, one of uh, Calvin's John Calvin's key influences was not the Scripture itself, uh, but rather was um, was uh, Saint Augustine and uh, and a lot of his teachings um, from from early on. But uh, but keep in mind, John Calvin finished his institute writings within a year after his supposed conversion from Catholicism to Christianity. So you think about that. All these people are following the teachings of a baby Christian at best. And I say at best because there is no record of a clear salvation testimony from John Calvin recorded anywhere. He spoke much about his infant baptism, never renounced that. He spoke much about, uh, uh, about his... Um, uh, what is it? Those, um, uh, any, anyways, um, yeah, camera, mine went blank there. Um, so let's look at this. So if the, by, um, uh, so we asked the question, did God elect some to salvation and leave others to damnation? If he did so, does the Bible clearly teach this? And if he did so, does the Bible clearly teach that non-elect will uh, have no possibility of salvation and cannot respond to the gospel? That would be the other side of the coin, right? Uh, or if they respond, is the response ineffectual or invalid? And that's where they said that statement, they will not truly come to Christ. You see, a non-elect person can come to church. A non-elect person can have an interest in God is the idea, but they'll never truly come to Christ unless God has elected them. And so I want to look at a couple words and investigate this a little bit uh, from the Bible. Um, there's three words where we get the word um, uh, elect, and, and I'll kind of dive into this uh, just, just a little bit. Uh, the first word I'll look at is uh, uh, eklaga, or ekloga, and uh, the root word there is lagos. How do you know what lagos is? All right, a little Greek lesson tonight. Lagos means what? Word. That's the name ascribed, uh, the word ascribed to Jesus. In the, in the beginning was the word. Word was with God. The word was God. The Lagos. The, the, the Lagos of God. So the root word for this is, um, is, um, is word. And then uh, ek, ek put in front of it means out of. And so, so it's out of a word. Or you might say it this way, a calling. A calling. The word there is calling that is used oftentimes. And so, uh, and that's the word ascribed to, to Jacob. Jacob have I loved. The calling. The eklagia. Um, and that's uh, um, Romans 9-11. So what ends up happening is this. We see Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, or Jacob have I called, Esau have I rejected. And what do we do? We now apply this to all people. Well, that's how God did it for Jacob and Esau. That's how God does it for everybody. And boy, that's a big danger that we run into, don't we? We look at certain things, something happened one time in Scripture, and we start applying it to everybody. What ends up happening is, is we spiritualize everything. What's the biblical application for David and Goliath? Uh, and we preach, we preach to our teens at summer camp, and we say, guys, God is going to help you defeat your giants with the five smooth stones. Here are the five smooth stones. The five smooth stones of faithful Bible reading. 
the five smooth stones, or the, the, the smooth stone of church attendance, the smooth stone of prayer, the smooth stone of, uh, of tithing, and the smooth stone of soul winning. And if you get a hold of those five smooth stones, you'll be able to knock down any giant that comes your way. Sounds very motivating. How scriptural is that? I give it a, I give it a, a, a zero, right? Um, it's not scriptural. Now, you may be motivated. Some people are all those five smooth stones good things to do. Absolutely. Is that the lesson of David and Goliath? No. No, but what, that's what we do with things. And so, so we try to spiritualize everything. So we look at these. And now, are there going to be some parallels? Could that be a good illustration for a biblical principle? Absolutely. But we look at things and we start to develop doctrines based on something that happened to one person. Okay. Can I tell you, God is not going to show up at your house and say, Derek, I want you to leave your home of Ur of the Chaldees. I mean, if, uh, uh, in Iowa, and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you later. But I'm not going to tell you where you're going, so just pack your bags, and we're going there. God's not going to do that to you, Derek. God did that to Abraham, Abram at the time. And, uh, and so, so what do we have left to do? Well, if God's not going to literally do that, then he must spiritually be doing that. What's the spiritual lesson? You see what I'm saying? And, um, and so, so that's what they've done. They've taken this passage that is completely about the nation of Israel. In fact, three, three or four chapters that are targeted uh, specifically at Israel, and they say, this is how God deals with everybody's salvation. I love you, I hate you. I love you, I hate you. I love you, I hate you. Now, can you back that up anywhere else? No, that's a proof text. Be very careful with proof text theology. Okay? Um, so that's the, the first word that we see, and it's the word for calling or elect. Calling. God calling somebody. Uh, the next word is eklektos. Uh, eklektos. And it's an adjective, the word it shows up in the Bible. And it's where we get the word chosen. Um, in fact, um, in Matthew 24, that's what the word means. It means chosen. It's an adjective. Uh, Matthew 24 is a great passage. Uh, again, remember when a word is hijacked, it changes the meaning. A lot of people are looking at Matthew 24 as proof that the church is going to go through the tribulation. Okay. Now, what's Matthew 24 about? It's about the tribulation. It's, it's Jesus answering the question, what is going to be the sign of thy coming in the end of the world? So Jesus goes through this whole thing um, about, uh, you know, kind of unpacking a lot of these things. And he talks about the tribulation of those days. But in verse number, um, um, in verse number 22, here's what the Bible says. And except those days, talking about this great tribulation, uh, in fact, 21, there shall be great tribulation such as it was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. So we're talking about the great tribulation. There'll be nothing like it to compare it to. And except those days should be shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. Get this now, but for the elect's sake, the chosen's sake, those days shall be shortened. So we see elect and we say, oh, for all those that are saved. God is going to shorten those days for all those that are saved. Again, we have a definition problem. Who's the elect in this passage? Well, I think we can answer it, but who is Jesus talking to in Matthew 24? Is he talking to the church? Well, yeah, isn't this all for the church? Context. Context, context, context. Who is he talking to? Who, who was he answering the question of? Verse 1, and, uh, or verse 3, and uh, uh, verse 2, there it is. <laughs> and Jesus said unto them, See, none of, these, none of these things, verily I say unto you, there should be no uh, not here left one stone upon the other that shall not be torn, thrown down. He's talking about the temple there. And he sat upon the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him. The disciples came unto him uh, privately, saying, Tell us when these things shall be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. And Jesus answered him and said, uh, uh, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And so on. I did a, a study through this, just kind of going verse by verse and unpacking what it's talking about. But, um, but yeah, he's answering the question of, uh, of the 12 disciples. Jesus, folks, Jesus was dealing with Israel. He came into his own, and his own received or not. Who's his own? 
the Jews, the kinsmen uh, of, according to the flesh. He came unto his own, that he was the promised Messiah of God's uh, elect people. And I said that very intentionally. I'm going I'm to challenge you with something in just a minute. Um, Luke 18, the same thing. Uh, uh, um, he talked about avenging God's elect. He's going to avenge God's elect. Um, uh, here's a good one. Uh, Colossians 3.12 is a good one. Uh, talking about... <clears throat> and by the way, I think a couple of these passages are why I think it is important. There are a lot of people today that say, oh, you shouldn't go to the Greek and you shouldn't deal with these things. Sometimes the Greek really gives some, some insight to what is being said. Now, I don't like to go there to say, what's a better word? Or what, how could they have translated this? Listen, I'm not so smart that I'm correcting the translators or correcting what God has given to us in the Scriptures. I do believe that God gave us what He wanted us to have. And, uh, but I will say this, there are times where, where even in the English language we are limited. And, uh, and it can bring some insight. For example, what's the, what's the Greek word for love? Depends on what love you're talking about. There are more words in Greek for love than there are in English for love. So in English, I will ascribe the same word and feeling towards pizza as I ascribe to my wife. I love pizza. I love my wife. In the Greek language, that would have never happened. You see? There's a word for the erotic and lustful love. There's a word for a brotherly love. You can say to a brother, I love you, and that doesn't mean you want to marry him. It's okay. There is an unconditional selfless love, the way that God loves us. We use the word agape. That's the Greek word. Uh, and so what I'm saying is sometimes finding out what the word is is going to help you understand what the English is saying. Okay? When the Bible talks about women, the older women teaching the younger women how to love their husbands, which word for love is that? Anybody know? Phileo, which is what? Philadelphia, the city of? Brotherly love, supposedly. <laughs> that's what the word means, brotherly love. You know what that's telling us? The older women have learned how to get along with their husbands and not kill them. Brotherly love, to live with them. Teach the younger women how to do that. That's kind of an interesting passage. But, but you see, you don't see that unless you're diving in a little bit. So, so my point with that is this. Look at uh, Colossians. Uh, well, you don't have to turn there. If you're already there, it's great. Colossians 3, and verse number 12. The Bible says this, that, this. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels and mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Now, just on the surface, it looks like it's saying, put on these things because you are the elect of God. But what's interesting is that word there, elect, it's an adjective, and, and, and it's like saying this. Do this just like the chosen of God do. Just like those who, uh, who have been elected or chosen, like them, as them as the elect of God. Um, 2 Timothy 2.10 is another one. Paul talks about how he suffers things. I'm not going to turn to all these. How he suffers things, all things, for the elect's sake. Well, that goes right in line with Romans 9, 1-4, through 4, where he says, I would wish myself a curse for the elect's sake, for the, my kinsmen according to the, uh, to the flesh. Uh, he is so passionate about the elect. Now, if I were to say this to you, who am I talking about if I say this? God's chosen people. What would you say? The Jews. And yet when we say, who are we talking about when I say God's elect? It's the same exact word. Oh, well, that's everybody that's been saved. Again, we have to ask the question, elect to what? Elect to what? We'll answer that next week. I do believe election refers to one of three things every time it shows up in Scripture, and I'll show you the proof for that uh, in two weeks, actually. And, uh, and so then the third word, so, so the first word, uh, eklaga, is a calling, eklektos, chosen, and then eklagagnia uh, uh, is uh, to choose. That's the verb form, to choose. And uh, that's verses like John 15, 16. That's a good one right there. I'm going I'm to turn there. John 15, 16. Here's Jesus with his disciples. And here's what he says to them. John 15, verse number 16. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Is another one of the proof texts. And ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it unto you. Now, let's just pull that verse out. We quote that all the time. You have not chosen me, I've chosen you. 
All right, and this is a great verse people say, see, unconditional election. God has chosen you. You have not chosen him. All right, well, again, who are we talking about here? In Matthew, the Bible says, and he chose 12 men. How many men did he choose? He chose 12 men to be his disciples. Who are we talking about? And we, and we know the story, right? He goes to, to, to Peter, hey, uh, you know, leave your nets behind. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, hey, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their father's nets and followed him. And, uh, and what do we see? We saw that. They didn't come after him. Hey, pick me. Pick me. And he says, you did not choose me. I chose you. So who are we talking about? We're talking about the disciples. Yet, we, again, here we have another example of something that was dealing with a certain people or group of people and applying it to all people. Now, if you were to ask the Calvinists and uh, take this verse, verse number 16 again, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Who is this that God has chosen? It's, and they would say, well, it's all the elect. Anybody that God, that God has chosen to be saved, the elect, he has chosen them. They did not choose him. Okay? And, and is this conditional? No, it's not conditional. It's unconditional. God has chosen them apart from themselves. Okay, that's a good question. Then let's continue the verse. Do you think context is going to change mid-verse? That whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I have chosen and ordained you to bring forth fruit and to ask God things that he will do for you. How many of you have had every single prayer answered in the affirmative that you've ever prayed. Well, they would say, well, that's, you know, there's got to be conditions. Oh, so the second half of the verse is conditional, but the first half is unconditional. You see what I'm saying? This is a tremendous position that was given to these apostles for this. Uh, for the, and by the way, he reiterates this uh, with them and their mission that they were part of uh, several times. <laughs> but this is uh, this was him choosing them, the verb form. I've chosen you. He's chosen out 12. He's called them, and he's elected them. That's the same exact word. He's elected them to follow him, he's, and he's ordained them with a very specific purpose. So here's some questions. Can you determine by election, uh, by election passages if God elects some to be saved and others to be damned? Now, obviously, I didn't take every single passage that a Calvinist may bring up, but, but, but just ask this question of yourself. Maybe search the Scriptures. Uh, look at some of the arguments. Can you determine by the election passages, by the so-called election passages, can you determine that God elects some to be saved and others to be damned? And I'd say you can't find it. I'd say that doctrine came about by some presuppositions, and they're having to fill in the gaps. Okay, If total depravity is true then we must come up with unconditional election because it's only God chooses to take out of the state of depravity and uh, so that they are in a position where they can actually respond to this gift of grace. Because obviously the gift of grace is not for everybody. And yet what do we find? We find, what does the most popular verse in the Bible say? For God so loved the world that what? He gave His only begotten Son that... Whosoever. The elect. It doesn't say that. It doesn't even say these Greek words we pointed to. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And folks, that's the premise of, of the mission of God. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Can I tell you this? If you are not elect, are you not part of the lost? Right? I mean, we every way you slice it, and that's why they got to play these word games. Okay, so here's the word game. What does world mean right there? Well, we can go to the Greek, we can go to a dictionary, we can find out the world means the world. No, it means the elect. And then they'll use the same logic in another passage to say the world there means the lost. No, it means the world. Okay. What does it say in First uh, John chapter two? And he, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Well, that's the world of the elect. You can't have it both ways. You see what I'm saying? And I know it's easy for me to have this argument without arguing anybody right now, because I'm not in an actual active debate. 
But let me just tell you, these are the verses that they'll bring up. Well, the world is the elect. It doesn't say the elect, right? Um, so, can you determine by election passages if God elects some to be saved and others to be damned? Is there a is there uh, is there evidence of election passages? Is there is there um, uh, even a group of passages, election passages, that are not? Uh, or excuse me, uh, is is the majority of the election passages about the nation of Israel? And that's where we got to get into context. And what you're going to find over and over again, I personally have come to this position that more and more, uh, we got to ask that question whenever elect shows up, is this Israel? Is this Israel? Election is chosen. Chosen means is election. It's the same word. Is this God's chosen people? Does God still have a plan for his people? And more and more, I come to the conclusion that, yes, he does. Oh, you dispensationalists, you think everything's about Israel. Can I tell you most of this book is about Israel? And, by the way, written by Jews. He, the Bible tells us that God is committed to the Jews, his oracles. We're brought in, folks. We're, in a sense, I want to say it this way because obviously God saw the beginning from the end. Because he's sovereign, we're kind of an afterthought in his plan. But we're brought into his plan, praise the Lord. But he chose Israel. And he chose Israel to be the bearers of his light. Now, in this day that we live in, this 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 time period right now, this age of grace, this church age, we, you and I, are the bearers of that light. Well, he's dealing with his people, and it's going to end with a big spanking as he's going to chase in his people and bring them back to himself. That's his purpose. We'll, we'll spend some more time in Romans uh, 9 and 10. But, um, but the question is, I, I believe that uh, it's, it's a resounding yes that, that uh, the election passages are really referring to the nation of Israel. Um, but, uh, but the big problem, the, the points of election... Are, are that they are for Israel, and what, what they do, the big problem is that they apply it to everybody. And so to wrap this up and conclude this tonight is this. Election means many things and has many settings. Uh, we'll unpack that more later on, but I'll kind of give you the, the rundown right now, and we'll look at the evidence. But election refers to Jesus Christ himself as the chosen of God, the Lord's anointed. Real election is referring to the nation of Israel, or the election refers to elected unto a purpose or a or service. It has to do with service. And that's what you see a lot of times when election shows up as it relates to the church. There is a purpose. You're elected to this. Here's a great example. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves as the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Unto good works. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained. Oh, there's one of those buzzwords. Before ordained, that we should walk in them. What was before ordained? Our salvation? No. That those who are saved will walk in their good works. There is a purpose. It was towards service. Okay. Um, but, uh, but election means many things and has many sayings. Most of the references of election concern Israel and her role as God's chosen people. The doctrine that God chooses some for salvation and prohibits others from salvation has very little biblical merit. A doctrine that makes God's invitation to salvation to be unreceivable is, uh, is, uh, is really, um, it's really disingenuous. It's not true to scriptures. And, uh, and I would say this, it's unacceptable. It is not the character of God. And all about you, I, I showed this before, that some, I get super passionate when I'm talking to a Calvinist, and I, I have to be so careful to tone it down because I get, the reason I'm so excitable is this, I, I, I'm put in a position to defend God. I love God. I love the character of God. I love who He is and what He's done for me in my life. And for you to attack His character and say that His, that his, um, uh, uh, um, his agape and his, uh, his benevolent love only goes this far and is cut off and it's not an everlasting love. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. With loving kindness have I, uh, have I drawn thee, He said to Israel. 
And I'm going to say that that is the character of God, really, I believe, to all people. And, uh, and we see that very consistent uh, regardless of dispensation. Uh, we see his grace being extended. Yes, we are saved by grace, but we do see grace extended in every era, in every uh, 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 portion of Scripture, as God is that loving God. He gives Israel a chance. He says, uh, you know, I would, have re I would have taken you in under my wings. I would have protected you. I would have, you know, I've called you and I've, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I, I kept wanting you and I was drawing you and I was there for you and you kept turning your back on me and turning your back on me. And you see him pleading over and over again with Israel. Um, read the book of Isaiah sometime and what do you see? You see God constantly pleading with them uh, amidst the fact that they are stubborn, they're stiff-necked, they're sick in the head. These are all the, the, the word pictures that God is using to describe Israel through Isaiah. And he said, yet if you would just turn to me, Isaiah 55, I will abundantly pardon. He says, that's what I would do. I love you that much. And the response would be, after we put you through so much, God, why would you do that? Why would you do that? To which he replies, because my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, Isaiah 55. That's the God of the Bible. The God that says, I love the world in this manner, that I gave my only begotten Son for them. And the greatest payback, you could say, to pay him back for such a gift is to receive the gift. That God's glory would shine in people's lives. See, the Bible tells us this. Herein, Jesus said to his disciples, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. There's the glory of God, bearing fruit. And so, so, so I struggle so much with it because it attacks the very nature of God. That if I'm sharing the gospel with you, Jabin, I could be doing this in vain. Because I might be wasting my time because God might have just chosen you to be condemned. And why am I wasting my time with that? And by the way, even if I don't witness to you and you are one of God's chosen, me witnessing to you is kind of a moot point because he's going to do what he's going to do. And if he wants you to be saved, guess what? You're going to be saved regardless of what I do. You see what that does to the believer? There's no more motivation to see souls saved. There's no more motivation to carry the gospel message. And the message is a good message. That's what the word gospel means, by the way. Good news. Hey, good news. You don't have to perish in your sins. Good news. You can be right with God even though He is just and holy. Good news. Every one of your sins has been paid for, and you don't have to stand before God condemned. Folks, that is some good news. And God offers it to everybody. And we see that over and over and over again. In fact, God even ends the entire Bible with one last invitation. When he says, come. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that a thirst come. Let him take of the water of life freely. I mean, if that doesn't speak to the character of God, I don't know what does. So I get passionate about it. A doctrine that God chooses some for salvation, prohibits others from being saved, has very little merit, biblical merit. A doctrine that makes God's invitation to salvation unreceivable is not acceptable. And the Bible is filled with references to Israel's unconditional election with conditional fulfillment. In other words, I've unconditionally elected you, but think about how he's attached things. But for it to be fulfilled, here's what must happen. And there's even prophecy about it being fulfilled, right? That's what a lot of uh, Revelation is about. That's what Romans, uh, you know, points to, that they will be saved. They are going to come back around as a people, as a nation. But right now, there's an individual call. So you are not, you are not part of that, if you would, uh, just by being a Jew today. You come to Christ as your Messiah. One day, the nation is going to recognize Christ as Messiah. It's going to be part of their doctrinal statement. As a nation, if you are a Jew, you believe Jesus is Messiah. But today, it's individual, just like you and I came to Christ individually. And that is such an important distinction. And I, and I, say that, I will say this. Because people have missed this, um, that... Uh, that God's still dealing with Israel. God has a plan for Israel, but he also has the church, and they are separate. Um, because people miss that, they've misunderstood end-time events. They've misunderstood the, the rapture and the tribulation. And, uh, and, and, and folks, this is just one of the many doctrines that start to fall apart when it comes to that. And so 
the false doctrine of total depravity necessitates the doctrine of unconditional election. Because, well, who then is going to be enlightened to be received? Who then? Well, whoever God decides. You know? And keep in mind, one of the most damaging things is, is this, is it makes God the author of sin. It pleased God for his purpose and his will that Adam and Eve fell so that he can reveal his glory. That wasn't verbatim, but that was one of the phrases we looked at from the Westminster Confession. That it was God's will that Adam and Eve sinned. How then can you condemn them for just fulfilling your will? Tell you what, my kids are good when they obey my will, and they're bad when they disobey my will. So if someone is just doing the will of God, how can you condemn them for it? God becomes the author of sin. We looked at last Wednesday night about how, how God does not tempt man with sin. He can't. It's against his nature. And so if it's part of his will, what does it say about this God? 